So, so the, it's not just a, a visual aid. It's not just a hey, look at these, look at this Marshall's grape juice and this, um, and these crackers and flannel graph over to the yeah, side. Yeah, doesn't this remind you of Jesus's cross? No, it's you're 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 actually a spiritual participant in the act of his death. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Great. Great, Nick. Yep. Well, fair warning, you guys, I'm recording this in my basement, but my three kids are roaming the house and yard completely unsupervised. <laughs> so there's a solid chance our listeners will hear some strange edits as I run off and <laughs> tend to crack skulls, accusations of unfairness, or even to inve- investigate suspiciously long silences. Uh, Matt, I do see occasionally a child of yours wander into the room that you're in, but they're always careful and quiet. How do you accomplish this? Do you do you bribe them, scare them? Mine seem impervious to any attempts. It's better to be feared than love, Nick. Yeah, right. be years of beating. Just, just yeah. years of beating. <laughs> they have a stockade in the backyard. It's, you know, it's, it's a classic. Go <laughs> right to the closet. <laughs> Cooler. Yeah, that's right. Well, today we thought that as a palate cleanser from the incessant talk about the election and COVID-19, we talk about another one of our Anglican Church's 39 Articles of Religion. And for today, we've picked Article 25 of the Sacraments. Now, I myself believe that we won't have a prayer of talking substantively about both communion and baptism in 45 minutes. So we'll see if this episode turns into a two-parter. Can you even imagine if we believed in all seven sacraments? But we'll get there in a second. So let me read Article 25, and we can go from there. So, of the sacraments. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. Those five commonly called sacraments, that is to say, confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, and extreme unction are not to be counted for sacraments of the gospel, being such as have grown partly of the corrupt following of the apostles, partly are states of life allowed in the scriptures, but yet have not like nature of sacraments with baptism and the Lord's Supper, for that they have not any visible sign or ceremony ordained of God. The sacraments were not ordained of Christ to be gazed upon or to be carried about, but that we should duly use them, and in such only as worthily receive the same, they have a wholesome effect or operation. But they that, the, they that receive them unworthily purchase to themselves damnation, as St. Paul saith. So maybe we start with the number, why two sacraments and not seven? Those are the two sacraments that Christ instituted for his church in the Gospels. You see him commanding his apostles to do these things. They're the, the dominical sacraments, we call right. them. Right. Dominus, yeah. Right. Uh, for the whole church. Um, the other, I guess, the other sign, the other signs sometimes called sacraments are often called sacraments. They are called sacraments by the Roman Catholic Church and the, um, and the Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox Church weren't instituted specifically by Jesus for his church. You do see 
examples of certain things that, that the Roman Catholics and Orthodox will point to in the Gospels or in the New Testament that, that indicate, well, yeah, we should be doing these things. But we would argue that, that because Christ has instituted them for uh, the use of all his people in the church, they wouldn't, they wouldn't carry the same uh, weight as, as the sacraments do. Yeah, I also like to say that of the of the seven, the five of which are commonly called sacraments, um, <laughs> these are the two that are dependent wholly on the trustworthiness and promise of Christ alone. That the the other ones involve, like marriage, for instance, is a wonderful gift, and I would often teach about it as being sacramental. And I think that it is a it is um, you know the visible image of Christ in the church. I mean, you can go on and list about why it's so important, and yet. It involves more than just Christ and his soul promise. It involves two sinners being brought into relation through him, which is an incredibly powerful thing, and yet is not the same as him saying, this is my body um, given for you. Do, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, these are, these are of a magnitude larger and more trustworthy, which then, and the way I teach it, following from the unbroken uh, promise in those two sacraments, you can trust in other things that you could call, if you wanted to, sacramental type things like marriage and perhaps ordination, if you wanted to go that way, in these other things but they are not of the same of the same magnitude and that was recognized at the time of the reformation and we've held on to that ever since i wonder if you guys would spend a minute talking about this phrase that i feel like gets talked about a lot in theory but not defined very well um, this phrase effectual sign of grace when the sacraments are called this in our articles that they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace. What does the article mean when it calls the sacraments that? Well, the, you know, if you just, you're right. If it didn't, if it didn't use the word effectual and just said signs of grace, then uh, we might be, we might be rightly accused of being mere uh, symbolists, I guess is the, I'm not sure what the word is, but just the, that these sacraments are just mere, mere symbols. And like we don't, memorialist? Yeah, yeah, memorialist when it comes to the supper. But the, the effectual means that we believe something is actually happening when the sacraments are received uh, worthily. And then the way you, the sacraments are received is by faith. So so when you, when you receive communion, for example, trusting in God's promise, we find in the gospels this is the the forgiveness of sins for example is attached to this to the to the wine um or the uh, or the declaration by paul that a um, partaking in the cup is a partaking in christ and partaking in the bread is partaking in christ when you come to these elements by faith we really believe you are truly feeding on jesus not that the 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 wine ceases to be wine or the bread ceases in any way to be bread but but um, on, on, by coming forward in faith, trusting what Jesus has said and what we read in the New Testament, you do truly, in a mystical way, feed on his true body and true blood. Would you say yes. that you, as a recipient then, are receiving grace in a unique way, in an extra extra powerful way? What What is the unique yeah, I mean, way that you grace is conveyed in the sacrament? You don't see, you know, you're... you're the, the actual feeding on the body of Christ is is something that has been, I think, uniquely given to us at the table. I don't think it's given to us anywhere else. So, in some sense, you can say that by faith we always kind of feed on Him in a in a in a spiritual way. But but there's a unique kind of feeding, unique kind of strengthening, unique, unique kind of nourishing that 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 we have at His table. And 
it, you know, like I said, there's some certain promises attached to it. I mean, in the, in the Last Supper, he said, this is, this is for the, about the cup specifically, this is for the forgiveness of sins. So it's a means of sanctification. I don't think it's a means of justification by any means, but it's a means of sanctification, certainly. It's one of those means of grace by which God, incre- like, a, like, the, uh, like the sacrament, like the um, Article 25 says, uh, which, by which he not only quickened, but strengthened and confirmed our faith in him. Right. So it's different than the normal everyday kind of Christian living where you pray and you read your Bible, which are great things. And you need, those are also means of grace, but, but this is a sure means of grace whereby you get uh, a, a kind of relation or a kind of participation in Christ that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. I think we need to remember, I mean, we didn't make this up, you know, I mean, had he said, it's like when I talk about marriage, like had he, had we, have we had any other relationship that he made as important as this as reflecting Christ in the church? We take a lot of, we'd all get dressed up and have a big ceremony about that one too, you know, but it just so happens to be the case that he had this meal where he said, um, this is my body, you know, broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for, and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you do this, do this yeah. in remembrance of me. So we listen to that. I mean, there's a wonderful, I'm not a huge fan of Dom Gregory Dick's, um, many of his theological emphases, but he does have a wonderful passage. Um, and it's entitled, if you Google it, uh, uh, was ever a command so followed. And I often read it during Maundy Thursday because it's a beautiful passage. And he talks about how, you know, was ever a command so followed to do this in remembrance of me. And he lists all of the various ways, you know, from the heights of um, coronations to emperors to the, you know, backwoods of a, of a country priest bearing a, a stillborn child. I mean, you know, just evo- it's so evocative, but at the end, you know, that, that shows the power and the continuation of this, of this repetition of the promise, you know, and that's where the, you know, the, I love the Anglican sort of middle ground between the Lutheran and the reformed, because, you know, as we could talk about the specific um, aspects of the, of the um, not, not holy reform, sort of, sort of the sort of Anabaptist reform, I should say, um, or Anabaptist, not reformed. Um, the, the idea that we say it's not merely a symbol, you know, like a church ordinance, you know, like I went to a Baptist church once with, I really loved the pastor and have a lot of friends there, but they spent about 35 minutes explaining that nothing was happening nothing at all don't think anything's happening there's nothing (laughs) magical about this this is nothing and yet they also read the um basically the exhortation from cranmer's uh you know be afraid of coming to this if you have confessed sin. so i was like well i mean i've never been so afraid in a church in my life Uh, and so yeah so like nothing's happening and yet i need to be wholly aware of like the fact that i'm unworthy to receive this and and i almost ran out of the church and so you know there's that on one side but then of course course they obviously obviously were fighting the ex operato you know it works in and of itself because of the power of the church to continue the mass and the sacrifice and we have this wonderful middle ground where we say it's neither extreme and yet it is what has been commanded of us by God as a gift you know and that's really the big the shift for me was that these are the gifts of God for the people of God like we want to open them we want you know with any other gift in our life that we think is good we, we enjoy it and we want it as often you know as, as reasonable you know as often yeah. as, as it's offered to us and it is feeding faith you know it is a unique place where we once again are brought back into the to the presence of God who spoke these words in time and space for his people, knowing that it would continue to hold them fast, um, come what may, you know, even, even in light of the internet, you know, even in light of wars and rumors of wars. And, and I have um, grown in my appreciation of, of it while not at this point having um, embraced either of these extremes and have found myself more comfortably ensconced within sort of the Anglican uh, true via media, I think. And I think that's one of the, the honest ways you could use that, 
term uh, when we come to our sacramental theology. When you read our Eucharistic prayer, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the renewed ancient text in the prayer book. We use the Anglican standard here, but um, there, there is what sounds on the face of it like memorialist language in there. We talk about remembering. We talk seemingly a lot about the fact that we're only doing this because Jesus told us to. We're almost like very hesitant to like, we're not doing anything magical here. We're remembering something. But at the same time, included in that prayer are very explicit prayers about that this may be the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we may worthily receive the body and blood. So we're we're kind of saying both things at the same time. Like this is a symbol. We are remembering something that happened once for all, but we are participating in something that's happening now. And I think that's, that's what this effectual sign of grace, those two words and actually work almost seemingly at odds, right? It's effectual, but it's a sign, you know, these, these two things are true at the same time. When the Jewish person would celebrate the Passover and eat the Passover bread, um, they didn't think of it just like it's a, just a mere memorial. Like we're just, hey, remember what happened back then? Yeah, that was really great. Um, it was you were in a spiritually kind of joining yourself with with the people and the Exodus experience. You were you were joining yourself as one with the fathers in a spiritual sense. And I read a book about this recently. I can't remember <laughs> stretching my mind for the author. I can't remember his name, but but remembrance never meant uh, some meant what it does for. 20th, 21st century Americans. It always meant some kind of participation in what was what was happening in the past. And so for the Jew, it was Passover was a participation in the in the Exodus experience. And for when when Jesus took the Passover feast and transferred it to himself, you know, so you remember his death, you're you're also participating in that. So, so the, it's not just a, a visual aid. It's not just a, Hey, look at these, look at this Welch's grape juice and this, um, and these crackers and this flannel and graph this, over to the yeah, side. Doesn't this remind you of Jesus's cross? No, it's your, you're, 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 you're actually a part a spiritual participant in the, in the act of, of his death. You die with him um, and also receive the benefits of that um, anew uh, in a sanctifying way. Yeah, and I think that that it applies as much, if not the same amount, or, or I mean more, to baptism. You know, which I often teach is simply the, you know, baptism is the initiatory right, uh, communion is a, the sort of ongoing participatory one, but they're basically the same thing. You know, they are they're inaugurating you into inaugurating you and keeping you involved in the perpetuation of an alternative um, reality to the one that you're living, which is constituted by God and his kingdom. I mean, in a certain sense, you are actually entering into his kingdom. Uh, you know, if Paul is to be believed, which he is, um, you know, that the kingdom <laughs> of God is not from eating and drinking, but is righteousness, peace, and joy. You know, we're baptizing these babies, uh, marking them indelibly with this sermon that has been echoing down through the ages uh, from Christ's own mouth, um, or from God in terms of baptism, you know, I mean, in terms of this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and to whom we've, we're participating with Christ. And then from Jesus, um, or God the Father, I should say in baptism, and Jesus in communion. And we get to we get to participate in this, as you said, through remembrance, which is not just a intellectual exercise physically, is for the rest of our lives, you know, until, and I think that that's what, what the feeding of faith involves 
is that well, we, we believe in the power of the spirit, you know, that continues to, to quicken, or as we said last Sunday in our colic, to stir up, you know, in the people's hearts. Um, but one of the means, if not the, the, the best means by which he continues to stir up the, the heart um, and the faith of his people is by feeding them through him, the, his own his very presence, you know, by faith, of course, but that's a very powerful thing as we, as we know. And so it's a, you know, to say that it's a mystery is a little bit of a sidestep and a little bit of an understatement, of course, but, you know, I think I've appreciated the Anglican reflection on it because they have done a good job, in my opinion, of keeping, of, of keeping the, the sort of what needs to be set in stone, you know, all the way from stone to pen to pencil, you know, and I think that we are, um, as I've explained it to some before, is like we are, we are comfortable saying a lot of what you're saying, you know, if you're like a Reformed or Lutheran, uh, we're less comfortable saying some things as, as dogmatically as you are, and which puts us, you know, a little bit sort of what you would consider towards the middle, perhaps, but that's been our position since, since the inception almost. I mean, you look at the 1552 prayer book, you had the influence of Bootser and uh, Peter Martyr, Vermigli uh, and Zwingli, you know, we're all very much a part of the, of the mix there with Cranmer, and yet there's still this, like you pointed out, Nick, there's still this, um, this seemingly gray area that doesn't put too fine a point on it, which has allowed for um, many books to be continued to be written <laughs> about what exactly do we believe about Lots that. of theses. That's right. There we go. I want to jump real quick onto that word quicken that you used, which does appear in the article. These sacraments doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. And you made i think a really a really apt parallel between baptism as the inauguration and communion as the continuation of this faith and the word quicken there i just want to sort of clarify for our listeners does not mean to make go faster it means to make alive to that's bring right. to life here we we talk about the quick and the dead that's the living and the dead so here we're we're talking about a grace of God that actually makes alive right. and then continues life. So it's, it's from him to us the entire time. He's not merely quickening something that we already have. That's right. That's right. And I think that's why we have to keep highlighting that it comes by faith. You know, faith comes through hearing. You know, how, do your, how does your child begin to start to know about God? Well, you start telling him about having been baptized. You know, you start talking to them about God, not only as if he exists, but because he exists and what he has done for them and what he has done for you. And this is how it's perpetuated. And so the, the repetition of these sacraments for the sake of his people, continue to bring the dead to life by faith and then strengthen what whatever faith is there by the remembrance of, of who he is and what he's done and, you know, who you are and what you haven't done, as it were. And that's um, how the church is held fast, you know, in, in the feeding of the sheep. It's not the only food, um, but it is, you know, this, what we say, what the spiritual food of the body and blood of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we are thankful that we've been grafted into this mystical body of the all faithful people. And so we, we are glad to participate in that and, and gratefully receive these gifts. I will say that, that, that con, that, that language of quickening when it's explained is, is what gives most of the people who come to my church from my congregation, from, uh, from more evangelical backgrounds, a lot of trouble. <laughs> and the language of the prayer book, which mm -hmm. speaks of regeneration, um, and, and it connects it Yeah, to, and this baptism now saves you. you yeah, know, they have yeah, a hard time with that. <laughs> Wait a minute. Even though Peter says it. 
Yeah, yeah. And and so there's a I mean, I would say that of of the the questions that I get when we do q and I try to do a Q&A every month or two during Christian Ed. I it, I, I can't remember remember one where infant baptism and regeneration didn't come into come up because it's such a troubling thing. It's important I think to make a distinction between what Anglicans are saying when we talk about the, the, the regeneration, the, the lever of regeneration is baptism, and what Lutherans say, especially, and what, what Roman Catholics say. I mean, Lutherans, uh, as far as I can tell, I mean, I, I, I've been, and maybe you, you guys know better about this than I do, because I know you, you've done some Lutheran uh, uh, work or study, um, but as far as I can we're tell. We're Jack Lutherans. We're Jack Lutherans. We don't really know what <laughs> They can understand that they, they believe that a baptism the child, an infant, is not only given new life, but also given faith, so that they're not interrupting or they're not in any way conflicting with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, because at baptism, necessarily, the baby's given faith. We would say, in, in contradistinction to that, it, that you baptize a baby fully expecting God to do, um, to do his work, but that you, it's, it's not received baptism unless there is faith, doesn't do what it it doesn't effectually do what the sign suggests. So faith, when um, when the, if a baby's baptized, and, and of course God could choose right then and there to regenerate the child and and bring and bring the child to full faith and justification, but He may not do it right then. He may do it much later. And for me, for example, I was baptized at three, and I was I I didn't I, <laughs> it, I was not I was not regenerate, <laughs> no matter what the prayer book said. Um, but then later, uh, when I came to when God used His Word to bring me to faith and I and, and new life, I didn't need to go back and and have a second baptism. I didn't I didn't need to go and. Uh, you know, my sister recently did that. She joined a Baptist church, and they said, "Oh, you, you, you got it. yeah." Not only were you baptized as a baby, but you were baptized with sprinkling, so you were you're right out. Um, That's right. But uh, <laughs> worse than not being baptized, this, this nothing that happens at baptism didn't happen in the right way when you were <laughs> you were baptized as a baby. So you've got to do this nothing thing again. Um, but but the uh, so I didn't have to go back and get a second a second baptism because by faith I received the the grace that was given to me at my first one mm. by my only baptism so so there's a, at least Anglo most many reformed Anglicans tend to draw that distinction between the 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 necessary the sign necessarily being or the the sacrament necessarily producing spiritual regeneration there's another type of way that people in the six, 16th century talked about regeneration that didn't necessarily mean being born again it meant being grafted into the church, um, being brought into the visible covenant body. And we would say that, I mean, no matter what the spiritual condition of a person, when that person is baptized, they are then inaugurated into this, the, the visible body of Christ on earth. But that's different than saying they're born again at that point. Although we do say that. We say that yeah. in our, our prayers. Yeah, J.C. Ryle says that our prayers are, I forgot the exact phrase that he, he used, but they are Janky. statements of, <laughs> yeah, they're optimistic. They're, they're like, they're charitable, charitable. Well, see, here's what, here's where, again, I, we, may, yeah. we, may, we may be finding ourselves at the other ends of the reformed or the reformational holes on this, because I, I agree with you. I'm not comfortable. I mean, I would become a Lutheran if I was able to say, and I've had conversations with my Lutheran friends about this. If I was able to say, with full conscience, with with good conscience, that that I believe that every 
child baptized uh, receives this this saving gift of faith. Um, now, you know, one of the ways that particularly the like the LCMS, for instance, does it is they have essentially the equivalent of a um, uh, covenant uh, family membership. You know, they don't just baptize anyone. You don't just show up, you know, roll into town and show up at your local LCMS and say, you know, I, I, um, I'd like to get my child baptized. So, you know, they do take some precautions with with saying this um, that definitively. Uh, which is not unlike a little bit of the, um, this is a whole longer conversation, you know, kind of the, the Presbyterian federal vision stream, you know, sort of the whole covenant grafting and the sort of headship of the family and the covenant membership and all this stuff. But, but with the way I've come down to it on, the way I've come down on it is that I want to say, you know, I think, I think that children can have faith. I think we're supposed to enjoy to have faith like a child. And I think that, that children, you know, John the Baptist left in his mother's womb in the presence of Christ. And the child, most of the children I've ever baptized have a faith in at the very least that I'm not their mother. You know, like they, they definitely know that, that I am someone that, um, that they want to uh, get back into their mother's arms as quickly as possible. Um, so, again, I'm not saying that that's saving faith. But the idea that we are inaugurating them into something that will, will they persist, this is the means by which the persistence will continue, is they will continue to be fed in the church by the repetition of these sacraments, which brings into question, you know, of course, when do they appropriate it for themselves? I mean, you know, in this confirmation historically and these things that, that they sort of stand up and say it for themselves. But I see it as a continuation and a, and a confirmation, as it were, of the gift and promise that we secured for them in baptism. That doesn't always happen. You know, this is the problem. Like, we all know people who were baptized and then they fall away. And that's always been the question. Well, what about the person who didn't come? And I say, well, you know, I'm not talking to that person because we're having this conversation. You know, and you're saying, well, am I saved just because I was baptized? I was like, well, you're not saved maybe just because you were baptized, but it's not because you, it's, it, it, it's in part because you were baptized. I mean, you're sitting here asking me about your own baptism uh, in part because, because it happened and you couldn't forget it, or at least you haven't forgotten it. And that's the conversation we're having now, which again, it doesn't mean that I think that what we're doing in every case is, um, is sealing something that is, that is you know, unchangeable. But I want to put a little bit more emphasis on the promise and the confidence in the promise for the parents and for the, for the, for the people that we're doing it in and saying that, listen, you know, we're inaugurating them into this new life. You have been, you, particularly the new prayer book, I think is a wonderful exhortation to the parents and godparents about what we're expecting you to do on behalf of this child. And, you know, at the darkest times of your parenting life, you're not going to hold on to what you hope they do, but you're going to hold on to what you have done by faith, faithfully uh, before God that he commanded you to do, which is present your child, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and hold on to and fight with God as opposed to fighting with the child. I mean, this is, these are, again, these are like sort of, I don't know, again, I might be, this might be a, my Jack Lutheran Anglican coming out because uh, I have this sort of hybrid, <laughs> hybrid. I know. I mean, I can see you um, getting, um, well, talk to me, Matt. Tell, tell, I'm me, just, what, I'm, tell I'm, me what's I'm wrong You're building the pyre with a stake on it. I figured so. You're just <laughs> taking, you're just rescinding all of the nominations for the various bishoprics that you've wrote glowing reviews for me about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually don't think we, we disagree that much because, because, well, yeah, of course, obviously, children, infants, I believe, preborn, unborn infants can have faith. Clearly, I mean, John the Baptist did, and it's, that's that's not that's not part of the question. Of course, I can, um, and I also agree that that baptizing an infant is you're fully expecting that God is is working in that infant and in the in the family and that that's going to continue on as they grow up and and that usually is the case in my experience 
because of that, you can look back when once the child or the adult is, is having these questions, you can point back to the baptism and the promises that are attached to it as an objective sign of assurance for them. Hey, you were baptized, right? And you believe you believe that what Jesus promised about baptism. So you, you don't need to be doubting or doubting. Yeah, your wouldn't you be a perfect the, example? Of this? I was just so going like, to say you this. Give me, you yeah. give me hope. I mean, like when I think yeah. of like baptizing all the people that I baptized and who, let's say, didn't weren't didn't seem to be, I wasn't, I wasn't pushing them off into a fully nurturing uh, catechetical situation. Let's just put it that way, you know, with their family situation. And yet um, maybe they're going to come back 20 years from now and say, you know what, like, I don't know why my parents did it because they didn't seem to believe it at all, but they did tell me that it happened to me. And I started wondering about it in college. What in the heck people even believe about this silly thing that they had done to me. And well, here I am, um, you know, I'm your new Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the exception doesn't prove the rule, but I think it, your, what your experience, it, it actually encourages at least my kind of hybrid understanding of what we're doing with this then dissuade me from it. Uh, doesn't now, of course, I wouldn't wish on anyone years, 20 years of prodigal living or however, however many it were it was. And um, that's a painful thing to watch. But, you know, if I had been the, the, the way that I, this is my, this is where I've landed on it. Like, I don't know exactly, this is a silly thing to say, what's happening exactly in the sacraments, you know? Um, <laughs> so in case if someone else does, please tell me. But the way I see it, as I said before, is that there's these these sermons, you know, these indelible sermons that God has etched and has has echoed down through time that he has attached his name to. And they're more powerful than any sermon I could preach uh, because they're from the mouth of Jesus, uh, of God himself. And we are we are marking the children. We are we are immersing them literally in some cases, or at least figuratively in most, you know, a little sprinkling. And the repetition of that is the feeding of the sheep, not solely, but the primary, um, from birth, literally from birth till death. And so we, we, we baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We feed them by God incarnate himself, and then we bury them as a sheep of his fold. And it's just one, it's, a, it's all part of a whole. And, you know, exactly what's happening, I'm not sure. And that some people seem to ignore it or fall away. It's very disturbing. But, you know, that's, again, why you exhort the parents and you challenge them and you have a second set, you know, in case the first fail and, you, you know, like triple safes on an um, airplane. And you say, listen, if we don't know, there's, there's nothing sure in this world except, except God's promises. And this is where they have been secured. And we know that um, this will always be here for you. And so that's kind of my... Um, the reason I do it, I mean, not, you know, I mean, I, I, I can, I think that some of the systematizing of it, um, and I mean, I'm a systematic theologian, like I've read the, the books and have wrestled through the questions. I think that, that some of the trying to find out exactly when faith is ignited, you know, is it, is it the, you know, on one hand, is it the power of the church, which sort of gives this power pellet that, you know, gives, you know, no matter what, like it's infused into the elements themselves, which is how you get, um, you know, monstrances and the, in the, you know, the reserve sacrament and the blessed, you know, veneration of the reserve. So that's one way of saying it, or does it have nothing to do with what's actually happening? And faith is actually just something within you because Jesus is nowhere present. He's still at the right hand of the father. And so in which case this is just a memorial. And I hope you really, really believe it. Or is it where we are, which is like somehow in the, you know, it's like the slow motion. It's like a, I don't know why this is a silly analogy, but it's like, when did, when did he kneel? Did he cross the finish line or is he, you know, it's like, we just keep going back and forth in the, in the replay. And we can't really figure out like, is his, did he, did he touch the ball? 
or is the knee down? And it's like, well, it seems like a touchdown. And we're not exactly sure where this happens, but we know that it's important and that it has proven to be efficacious. And as we said, what, effectual, you know, not just a sign, but an effectual sign. And and I um, have, have gone back and forth in my own personal teaching and piety about this from everything from almost mere memorialism. You know, one point I got in an argument with someone who was like, you didn't, you know, if you just had a sermon, that's all you would ever need in church, you know, and that was kind of one idea. And then all the way to, you know, trying on um, every single vestment that was in the cabinet that they had and, you know, turning around three times and bowing 75 times and all the case and sort of and have landed at least now somewhere in the, I don't know, mushy middle perhaps where I am grateful simply to have it to be something to hold on to, you know, something to like a, a visible, a, a literal and, and physical manifestation of a the ephemeral and, and spiritual promise of God in the world. And, um, I don't know. I'm, I, I've, I've grown in that. Um, I don't know, Nick, we, we used to get in this argument all the time. I mean, if it were up to Nick, you would, um, what would you do? You would, uh, just have communion once your entire life. Or, no, uh, that's not what I was going to say. I was actually going to say the opposite. The, the article here says specifically that these are not supposed to be like framed up on the wall. You know, they're not supposed to be gazed upon or carried about. They're supposed to be used. These are things that we use. So I think the argument against doing it as much as, is, as you said, reasonable is an argument that f- falls apart quickly. What I wanted to say to sort of echo you, I think, and it's, you know, sort of not fair. We've been friends for a long time. We've been talking about these things offline for years. So I don't, I don't want to sound like we're ganging up on Matt in any way. He's like a theological Krav Maga. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he can take his, on two or three people. At a time. His hands are registered weapons, <laughs> theologically right. speaking. Like the, like a Gracie, like a grappler. He's there like, you go. <laughs> but I found, um, I find stories like yours just as encouraging as JD does because it allows, you know, and if I might be permitted to put words in your mouth and you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly I think you would say that when you eventually did come to that saving faith in Christ, that was a work of the Lord in you, not a work that you drummed up in yourself. So even though it was sort of, chronologically later in time, I think we would all say that the Lord had your name written down from before time immemorial and that Jesus somehow knew your name as he hung on the cross. And when he said it is finished, he meant it is finished for you too. And so the timing, again, I don't know exactly how that works out too, but the fact that it is still God's work in a sinner's life one way, that makes me feel totally comfortable baptizing and sending off, you know, hopefully to a life in my own church where they're going to hear and be discipled, et cetera. But, 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 but then if I see from afar, somebody, you know, living a reprobate life like you did, I, I yeah. can, I can be comforted. Unimaginably be rever- reprobate. <laughs> I can, I can <laughs> be comforted that. <laughs> that God keeps promises where we break them. Amen. And that even if somebody lives their entire life and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a universalist. I won't say that, but I'm hopeful that there there might be some time, even at the very end, where someone says, "You know what? I've been eating the pig pods my entire life. 
but the Lord is at work and I want to come home. And I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm, I'm sure what I am sure of is that it's not up to us to make a good decision, but that it's God who, who works in us and, and makes this happen for us one way or another. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's part of that. That's part of the reason why I probably can't go as far as you guys go about the, uh, the, 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 it sounds like you're making uh, the argument that anyone baptized, maybe I'm mishearing, mishearing you, that anyone baptized will at some point receive true faith from God. And I, I think one, one person breaks that rule. Right. And, and I think we can point to multitudes of people who've been baptized as infants and, and have died reprobate. Um, and, and I, and I mean, maybe, I mean, if you're going to say in a deathbed secretly, God communed yeah. them and brought them to faith. Okay. Let's just sure. talk about what we can, what we can maybe objectively <laughs> discern. So if, if, if it's the fact that, that some do receive baptism and yet die outside the faith, I think our own articles demand that we say that baptism doesn't always convey regeneration and faith because our articles especially our, was it article 19 or article 17 it's the the, the predestination um our articles embrace the idea of the per, of perseverance yeah that that the person who is genuinely a believer yeah, will, will be brought all the way to glorification and so that would mean that would conflict with our understanding of baptism if we said, well, everyone baptized yeah. is, is brought to genuine faith. Right. And in terms um, of church practice, I'm aware that were I to carry this to its logical end, I would be on a street corner with a fire hose, just like shouting the words and getting everybody right. wet. And that's not happening. Right. So, so clearly there's some fence that's preventing me from going there. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I see, here's where I go back to um, at least my understanding of Luther, although, you know, we write 55 volumes of stuff. You can get a lot of different understandings on it. But, you know, he was he was concerned about this question about predestination, you know. And, I mean, you can. there's a lot of books written about Luther and predestination, and you'll get a lot of different answers, particularly around the question of limited atonement, you know, sort of um, – sort of, anyway, the point is – this is sort of where I um, have landed on it is that, you know, he certainly believed in God's sovereignty. I mean, you can't read bondage of the will without believing that. And yet he was concerned pastorally speaking that people were getting caught up in this great question of what if, you know, what if I think I'm elect in particular, and that was one of the most scariest of the, if you look at what's called the golden chain, you know, William Perkins helped write this thing where there's a, there's a version of the reformed understanding, a version, not the best one that somebody basically lives their entire life under the great comfort of being a Christian, it turns out they actually were never really elect. And so they get all the way down to um, death and they're, well, I'm sorry, you were, you know, we never knew you. It's like, well, that was a shock to me, you know, my whole life. And so that was sort of kind of a very terrifying prospect, which, you know, to a certain understanding was still emphasizing God's ultimate inscrutable will, you know, so that was kind of the, the reaction to it. The point is, and the thing is in Luther's Galatians commentary, I mean, uh, Genesis commentary, he goes off on a tangent about this and he starts saying well listen we can say well, all we can say for certain uh, because we're not god is that you have you have been and are saved like if you're wondering about this do you have faith like this is the confession like do you believe do you believe yes i do like this is where we are so with respect to what happens to the people who i baptize who aren't worried about that um, and where they are now and what they're going to say on their deathbed, like I can't say, and I don't think anyone could uh, one way or the other, whether they definitely are not 
crying out, you know, in some, you know, club in, in the middle of nowhere where they finally hit their last hit of acid or whatever, that like the last thing they say is like, you know, God, I, I know I was baptized, you know, who knows? I, again, I can't say that. I don't think that's normative I and mean, you shouldn't teach that. But at the same time, I also, um, um, I, I can't definitively say that every single person that I baptize, um, you know, only the ones that, that I see and know have been saved. And so, so what I'm more comfortable saying is that this is what you hold on to and you hold on to it because it was God's promise before you, you know, a lot of offense people take is that I didn't choose it. It's like, well, that's part of the, the, the rationale here. Like you, you Jesus, that's the in good fact, part. Jesus in fact said, I do not choose you. You know, you do not choose me. I choose you. And so we model that. And this is what you hold on to, not your own works, not, not even the work itself, but the faith that is, that is signified in the confession that you have been crucified and raised with Christ, which is exactly what we did symbolically. And actually, literally, in the case of immersion, you know, to a certain degree, you know, in the old days, it holds you down long enough, you start squirreling back and they're like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm new. And, you know, so that's where, again, I don't disagree with you, Matt, and I wouldn't say that I know for a fact that everyone that we've baptized have been saved, but I do know that the means by which people can hold on to their salvation is by looking at their baptism. Like Luther said, you know, remember your baptism on a daily basis, like hold on to it, like the ark, you know, that we even say in our new our new liturgy, you know, like God saved people through water through the ark, so we're being saved through this baptism. And so, again, you know, the people that I'm not in earshot of who have forgotten their baptism or don't or ignore it or, or have no use for it, then I, I guess I pray, you know, sort of abstractly that somehow that will quicken their faith at some point, if it hasn't now, and maybe when they're 26 or whatever, um, however old you were, that's when it happens and they may never make the connection. But, um, but if, if, you know, for those that I have any pastoral um, relationship with still that I can still talk to and encourage and, and convict perhaps, you know, like remember what we promised, you know, you know, like when I look at these, I mean, a lot of, I do it more often now than I ever did um, before is when I meet with the parents beforehand and say, you know, you're not, um, this isn't just about you doing something. This is about me standing before the Lord, you know, um, offering this as part of my role in ministry. And so don't be surprised if we continue to follow up on these promises that we're making, you know, jointly for the sake of this child, you know, and I haven't had to like, you know, uh, sort of bring any heavy, uh, artillery with me at this point, but you know, just a little bit of, of gentle encouragement has, has really kept some, some people closer to church than maybe they otherwise would have. You know, so again, that's where I don't, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, I subscribe to 39 articles. I don't want to say anything uh, contrary to them. You know, I know my Lutheran friends and some reform for that matter, you know, can't become Anglicans precisely because of this, this conversation that we're having now they're uncomfortable with because they don't think it should be allowed, you know, to a certain degree, like either the, you know, my reformed Baptist friends who just absolutely refuse to push any, any legitimacy to anything sacramental in this respect, you know, and, and just say, cor- keep correcting me and saying ordinance, 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 you know, or, um, or my more um, Lutheran friends who to their credit, it's a, it's a closed system. I mean, it's a, it's a, it makes sense, but you know, the, the most important thing to them is the day that they were baptized. And it's because it's, it's an inauguration and a, and a seal of membership into, um, into Christianity. And so, you know, like me, I mean, like you, I, I am, I don't know if I have too much reforms, too much evangelicalism, too much American, I don't know, but I can't, I can't in good conscience go there, but I'm, I'm, um, can can easily consider them brothers and sisters in Christ, of course. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that 
the belief that people who are baptized do fall away and and die in a state of reprobation means that those who are, means that the, the baptism is any less of an assurance for those who believe. I mean, if like you, if someone comes to me and says, I trust in Jesus, but I'm, I'm really having doubts about my, my place, you say, okay, well, there's promises that apply to that trust in Jesus. And if that's not good enough just to have that in your head, go look at your baptism, where we have concrete promises associated with baptism, and you you trust in Jesus, those promises therefore apply to you. So, so yeah. yeah, baptism is a great objective objective means of, of assurance for people. Well, um, you could think, say then, so it's effectual for the elect. Yeah. Right? I, mean, I mean, it's a normative, like you can be, I think you can be saved. You know, everyone points to the thief on the cross, like he probably wasn't <laughs> baptized, you know, so I mean, there, you can be saved outside of baptism. But the question is, what's normative and what's, what's not. And so the normative means of grace by which God, you know, establishes, quickens, elicits, and maintains faith is through his sacraments. I think that would be something you, we could possibly say. And that, yeah, we could agree. And so that. if you weren't elect, Different nuances and- well, for sure. But if you weren't <laughs> part of the elect, well, then it doesn't matter what you did ever anyway. I mean, that's a hard, that's a right. hard teaching also, right. which is not one that, that is fun to, to reflect upon. Although in our 39 articles, I love the way they talk about that. And they say that the, the idea of predestination is only an offense to the uh, carnal and, you know, the unspiritual and carnally minded for, for whom it, what does it say? I actually have it. It says it uh, makes them angry. It either makes them angry and they reject it or it turns them into licentious, uh, you know, sort of sinners because they say, well, if I'm already chosen, then I can do anything I want. You know, he said, well, that's not the right way. But it says it's a great comfort for those of us who have been chosen. And I think that's a little bit in sort of the pastoral rhythm of it is that when we say this is a gift of God that was given to you before you could even talk that, that signified his his having gone before you and his unbreakable, unbreakable promise that he will be for you, even in the midst of the darkest times of your life. Can you hold on to that? Do you affirm that? Do you, is that good news? And we say yes. And that's how the power of baptism continues to quicken faith as it were, you know, I mean, it holds people fast. And, you know, that's where the, um, there's an article, there's two articles that, that kind of were influential to me have been one is by a guy named Philip Carey, who we know, you know, he's, he's, a um, professor at Eastern College. Um, he wrote a paper called Why Luther is Not Quite Protestant. And he didn't mean Protestant like um, like Reformed, like PCA or something. He meant like Anabaptist, like, you know, getting, getting free will baptism. And he basically said that there was two different ways of raising your child, whether you raise them as a Christian, you know, obviously in the hopes of being a Christian. I mean, we can't say, but you raise them in a Christian world as having been come to God. They already know he's been introduced, you know, all of the things that come with that. Or do you raise them in the hopes of them becoming Christian? And that was kind of started me on an intellectual trail that I am still walking on. And it was, it was uh, further elaborated by an article by uh, now dead um, Gerhard Ferdy, who, um, who had a, a, a article on infant baptism said on something. Yeah, right. Everyone collective uh, screeching. He said he had an article called infant baptism colon um, something to believe in. And his whole point was that there has to be some point in life where we are marked or where we can sort of signify, um, uh, hold on to, you know, in time and space, something that gives us um, purchase for our faith. You know, it's not just this ephemeral, like, I feel like I believe it, you know, but maybe it's because I had a really good lunch or something, you know. And that when you combine infant baptism, which is before I had any choice or agency with that's actually something, like it's not just a sign or symbol, well, then it becomes this, 
transcendent marker um, in time and space that we can return to and, as it were, celebrate as this jo joint confession of having had nothing to do with my salvation and yet being confident that it was, in fact, a real thing. You know, which is which is quite something, I think. And so, you know, how I'm going to fold that into the Anglican, um, you know, divines and sort of the history of reform dogmatics is yet to remain to be seen. Uh, but how how it's working out pastorally and um, as it were, uh, you know, preaching wise through it has been I've I've seen um, great fruit through that because people who would have told me you know, five years ago, if they would ever had any joy or understanding even of baptizing mm -hmm. a child now say things like, you know, uh, we have a, we have a ceremony every year on the day that our child was baptized as a, as a celebration of, of God's mercies. And, you know, and you're like, well, my work is done here. <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever. So again, that's not a, that's not a sidestep to saying that liter the theology is not important. Um, but I'm grateful in this respect for, as we said before, some of the ambiguity that exists at the heart of the mystery of our sacramental theology, which allows for a resonance, you know, between between some of the, the beautiful aspects of Reformed theology and, and some of the beautiful aspects of Lutheran theology, I think. And I've said as much before Lutherans and Reformed, and they sort of politely laugh and then never invite me back. So, <laughs> uh, that, there's, I mean, there's a massive difference between raising a child, you know, just every you know worrying all the time oh my goodness is my child you know going to hell when, when will he say the prayer of salvation right. and accept jesus into his heart what what can i do he's halfway like, down the roma's road maybe halfway. i, yeah. <laughs> I need to show him in one of those houses of ill repute <laughs> i should send him on the the church retreat where they're going to watch the you know the left behind series or something and that's right you know we're going to send him to hell house that'll <laughs> right, shake him exactly. up that's exactly. right there's for a massive reason he's only for some reason he's only applying to read college i don't understand that either but i'm sure there's no connection <laughs> <laughs> well there's a massive dis difference between that and and raising a child in the, co in the context of the covenant which which i believe is what we're doing Amen. and and for sure in baptizing an infant we're saying the assumption is that you are going to believe that you are you do believe and you're going to that belief is going to be increasing throughout your whole life that's the assumption um mm -hmm. and so we're not treating them like little pagans in our houses that's right. um we're treating them like little christians um and i think the, the scriptures even assume that when paul tells children i think it's in ephesians 6 to honor their honor their parents in the lord and that's he's speaking to covenant children who are in who are part of that who are, who are responsible for doing that because they're because they're in in a body um, so yeah I think I think I think the assumption is just radically different when you have a, an infant baptism that assumes a baptism is something more than just you know a, a, a word picture yeah and and we're 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 living through this the rapid decoupling you know of sort of Christendom or sort of Western Christian you know civilization and the repaganization of it and so you know, for even the past centuries, couple of centuries now, there was still kind of a basic Christian worldview into which you got, everyone got baptized, you know, like in Church of England, like everyone's baptized, this is what the world means, like you may or may not believe some of it, but in general, even if you're a deist, you know, there's something about this. Um, but, you know, we are being confronted now with sort of what the early church did, is that this is a radical break with the world that you otherwise would know. And so I think as ministers, it just, it makes sense that we are being confronted. I mean, I can just speak my own personal, you know, what would have been ordained, what, 14, 13 years now, Nick, 14. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's been a deepening of responsibility and, and understanding of as the culture has changed, as the church has changed. And, um, you know, I pray and I ask God to forgive me for some of the um, 
perhaps more cavalier attitude towards it that I had than I do now. And maybe I'll look back 10 years later and have even more of a different attitude then. But certainly the idea of preparation for the parents, challenging and and sort of um, walking alongside them with the great fervency that that this responsibility that we've called them to is is a gift, yes, but it's a gift that must be nurtured and and fed and and, and further equipped. That's that's just what we've been called to do, you know, as shepherds. And so I feel like I've um, kind of not come full circle, but have have been grateful for the freedom to develop this uh, more fully and trust now going forward, um, you know, with however much long I have in ministry here on earth that the people that, um, that God will allow me to, to lead into baptism will feel um, further strengthened and further encouraged um, and, and a greater sense of confidence in what, um, what we're doing than, than perhaps they, they did before. Any final Doesn't thoughts? Have to be the, Matt is final thought. No, I mean, I think I think we're we're in you know we're in basic agreement, and I think um, I think the beauty of baptism. I, I guess we have devoted this show to to baptism, mostly baptism. We yeah, we didn't do two sacraments in one show. You were right. You're right, Nick. One. What is communion uh, in our yeah, last two right. minutes? <laughs> Everything's communion. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think the basic the beauty of, of of baptism is is that picture of of God doing His work to the helpless. Amen. Uh, uh, the helpless human being who can't, who, who's in, it's impossible for us to die and rise again. It's easy for us to die, but not to rise again. And, um, and to, and to have new life is something that only God can accomplish. And so baptism is a beautiful um, sign of that great work that he does um, not just externally, but in the soul of, of the person. And, um, and so we might disagree on some of the, on some of the nuances, but, but we agree on that. Amen. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for another great conversation. Um, thank you out there in listener land for taking the time to listen to our ramblings. If you want to keep the conversation going, hope you will be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Uh, thanks as always to Matt Kennedy and JD Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Thank you.